0: Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. Many thanks to everyone who has commented and emailed us about our stories. We've gotten some great feedback. A listener, Dana, commented on our website about the zoo episode. She told us that Elvis didn't actually get the wallaby he donated to the zoo from the fans in Australia, It was actually just given to him by some fans.
1: Although that's still a very random gift to give someone. Yeah,
0: it is. (laughs) Uh, And she also said that he donated peacocks to the zoo because they were damaging his car.
1: Oopsie, feisty peacocks. (laughs) I guess those are the same peacocks that children would chase around the zoo too. Right. Well, thanks for the correction, Dana. We love getting feedback on our story, so keep it up. And speaking of wallabies, do you want to hear a story totally unrelated to the zoo, but completely related to wallabies? Sure. Okay. So years ago, I used to work at a car dealership on Kevin and Pike, and it just so happened that a lady who lived in Raleigh had kangaroos as pets, which is apparently legal to keep them as pets. I wouldn't do it, even though they're very cute, but you could. And she had a back house that they lived in. And occasionally, when I was driving around, I'd see them hopping around the backyard. So, my friend and co worker Robin loves kangaroos. And one year for her birthday, I told my boss I was going to take her to lunch for her birthday, but it was going to be a long lunch because we were going to see if we could meet some kangaroos. So, we went to lunch, and on the way back, Uh, I drove past the kangaroo lady's house and went and knocked on the door and told her my friend loves kangaroos and it's her birthday and we wanted to see if we could meet some kangaroos.
0: And she was like, so what? Get off my porch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, but not really. Um, She didn't let us actually meet the kangaroos for whatever reason. I'm sure it was a good reason, probably because... We didn't need to be meeting kangaroos. They they're punchy apparently, Um, but she did bring out a wallaby and a backpack so we could pet it, and it was the cutest thing ever and really really soft. (laughs) And I also found uh, found out what it was like inside their pouches. You know what it feels like because who knows what the inside. You actually
0: got inside one of the pouches.
1: I got inside one of the pouches inside (laughs) this lady's
0: backpack. I don't think that's true.
1: (laughs) It is not true. Uh, It was just really soft. Like, regular skin. It wasn't weird or anything. But, I mean, have you ever felt inside a kangaroo's pouch? I have not. Nope. All, All right. right. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, Robin and I were super excited that we got to snuggle on a wallaby. And that's my slightly not really related wallaby story. Fantastic. All right. So, on with the show.
0: This episode is about firsts in Memphis. It occurred to me after several tours of our favorite place, Elmwood Cemetery, that our city has numerous things that happen for the first time here in our city. Uh, We're going to talk about a few of them today. We'll revisit this topic periodically uh, because there's quite a few. Uh, We've got a few more on the list, but if you have any more suggestions, of course, please let us know.
1: Okay, so this is a quote by Dorothy Abbott, Assistant Manager and Program Director of WHER. We are not trying to prove that we can get along in a world without men. We are simply trying to prove that when a group of women make up their collective minds that they're going to do something successfully, no force on earth can keep them from doing it. And as soon as I read that quote, I loved every bit about it. And even today, I feel like it still has just as much relevance as it did in the 50s. Right. This quote was from the program director of the first all-female radio station, WHER, that was started in 1955 by none other than Sam Phillips, the man behind helping to make Elvis famous. And Phillips used the money he received from selling Elvis' record contracts to start the station. According to Phillips, he created the station from his love of radio and his curiosity of hearing women's voices on the air.
0: I'm sure hearing a woman's voice on the radio is a pleasant change from all the male-saturated chatter on the radio.
1: Right. The I'm sure. <laughs> um, women ran the entire operation, everything from being on-air personalities to engineering their programs. And Phillip's wife, Becky, was one of the first DJs. And he drew women from all over the Memphis area, most who had no experience in radio. He employed models, actresses, telephone operators, and housewives, just to name a few. And WHER was recorded and broadcast out of the third ever Holiday Inn, another Memphis First we'll discuss in a moment, in a studio named The Doll Bin. And it was decorated all pink and girly. And while that's not really my cup of tea, I'm sure it wasn't seen then as stereotypical as it would be today. Uh, but the DJs delivered the news and played the music on air, conducted interviews with local celebrities. And created and sold commercials, produced and directed the programming, and ran all the control boards. And WHER radio station ran from nineteen fifty five to nineteen seventy three. And it inspired women everywhere to start similar stations. Which yeah. I think is pretty fantastic. It's awesome. yeah. Good yeah. job, Memphis, for having the first all female radio station ever. <laughs>
0: In uh, sticking with the radio theme, Memphis is also home to the first radio station programmed for African Americans with African American on-air personalities. WDIA was originally created in 1947 as a country, western, and light pop station, and it failed. The owners of the station, John Pepper and Burt Ferguson, both white, decided to take the station in a different direction. They hired Nat G. Williams, a teacher at Booker T. Washington High School, to be the DJ of the Tantown Jubilee the first program to appeal to black listeners. This new show exploded, and the station switched formats to an all-black programming station. It became the number one station in Memphis. WDIA was known as the star-making station. Many musical legends, such as B.B. King, Rufus Thomas, got their start at WDIA. King started out hosting a 15-minute show and then moved on to hosting a full afternoon program. It was during his show that the station got their first major advertiser. B.B. King credits the station for helping launch his career, and by 1954, WDIA had increased its power to 50,000 watts, making it possible to be heard from the Missouri Bootheel to the Gulf Coast. Wow. Yeah. Also in 1954, the station created the Goodwill Fund. Originally, it was designed to transport disabled African-American children to school, and then later it grew to be an organization that offered college scholarships, established boys' clubs, uh, provided Little League teams, and helped provide low-cost supplemental housing. Until 1972, the station management had been an integrated one, which was pretty uncommon for the time. But that year, Chuck Scruggs was promoted to general manager. He became the first black general manager at the station. Mr. Scruggs did more than just run a number one radio station. He helped preserve one of Memphis's historic sites, the Lorraine Motel. When it was in danger of being torn down, he donated the money to save it and helped create the Civil Rights Museum. WDIA, the heart and soul of Memphis, is still running today, providing the world with classic R&B music.
1: I actually have an uh, an acquaintance slash friend um, who's currently a DJ at the station. He's Earl the Pearl Augustus. Uh, I believe he hosts um, the morning show. And I don't know him super well, but he always posts a question of the day on his Facebook page. And I'm always intrigued to read people's answers, which I think is, is pretty cool. He's very interactive. Um, and also, years ago... Uh, back when I still worked at car dealerships, um, I worked with this fella who was a DJ there in the past and sadly his name escapes me, but he was very nice and he drove a really pretty Corvette that he <laughs> offered to let me drive to Chicago one day, which I think he was crazy for doing. Cause I was like 20 at the time, <laughs>
0: but that's what you would remember.
1: That's, that's what I would remember, but he was very awesome. Um, so, uh, I think that's fantastic yeah. again. Good job, Memphis on our, our radio stations. All right, we talked earlier about WHER being recorded in the third-ever Holiday Inn in Memphis, and that's because Holiday Inn is a Memphis hometown business. The name started as a joke in reference to an old Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire movie, Holiday Inn. Uh, But in 1952, that joke-named hotel concept came to fruition. The hotel idea was the brainchild of Memphian Kimmins Wilson. And he got this idea, Wilson and his family were taking a trip to D.C. when he realized there were not enough hotels or motels in general, and the ones that existed, the rooms were small and uncomfortable, and they charged extra money for children, which apparently Mr. Wilson had several children. And um, the idea for Holiday Inn was born out of frustration, basically. He believed there should be comfortable and reasonably priced accommodations for traveling families he had the dream of creating 400 hotels across the country that met a standardized criteria that was efficient and comfortable. So in just one year, Wilson had opened three hotels in Memphis, but he quickly ran out of money. So he ended up partnering with Wallace Johnson, who owned a construction company, and he was able to make a franchise possible. Just two years later, in 1954, Wilson and Johnson built the first Holiday Inn outside of Memphis in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, In 1962, there was a Holiday Inn opening every two weeks. In 1964, Wilson had exceeded his goal and opened his 500th hotel. Four years after that, the first Holiday Inn opened in Europe. So in less than 12 years, Wilson's dream of offering families a better travel experience had come
0: true. Yeah, no kidding. Granted, these days we usually stay at Airbnbs or occasionally notoriously haunted hotels because we're fans of the spooky. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I feel like Holiday Inns are always a safe bet. They're reasonably priced. They're clean. And they generally have a pretty good free breakfast.
1: And I have never been locked inside my room because the door went open when I've stayed at a Holiday Inn, which is more than I can say for a cheap hotel in Destin I stayed at once. <laughs> True story. Good job, Holiday Inn. Yeah.
0: <laughs> good on you for making your locks work.
1: That's right.
0: Uh, and last but not least, if you've ever been to the Pink Palace, your favorite part...
1: Besides the creepy crypt and the foot amputation? Yeah, it's not my favorite part either. All right, it's probably just me.
0: uh was probably the mock grocery store the grocery store in the pink palace is based on the original piggly wiggly founded in memphis in 1916 prior to clarence saunders great idea for a self-service grocery store the store's clerks would gather goods for you it was not a quick trip to the store like it is now customers would have to wait in long lines because it took so much time to help one customer The cost of employing clerks was passed on to the customer and sometimes clerks charge customers more than necessary due to unclear product pricing. This led to inconsistent pricing and more expensive shopping. Saunders knew he could cut costs and speed up the process. By allowing the customer, armed with a shopping basket, to pick out their own groceries with clearly marked prices, he could employ fewer clerks that would be there to stock shelves and ring up customers. This would reduce the end cost for a customer. It also allowed stores to start carrying more than one brand of product. Now, customers could choose the product they enjoyed instead of having to settle for only one option. Uh, How Saunders came up with the name Piggly Wiggly is still a mystery, though. He claimed that he named it this so that people would ask him why he named it that. Uh, (laughs) Which is pretty funny. Pretty genius. (laughs) Piggly Wiggly grew and spread quickly. In their first year, there were nine Piggly Wigglies in Memphis, and by 1932, there were 1,200 across America. This store paved the way for modern supermarkets and is the reason we grocery shop the way we do today.
1: And Piggly Wiggly was actually the first grocery store I ever remember shopping at. And it was on Winchester and Mendenhall.
0: I'm not sure that's the same for me, but it was, it was one of the first, at least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this concludes our first of Memphis episode. Our city has paved the way for many everyday things that we don't even think about or take for granted. Just imagine how things would be if any of these things had not happened.
1: And as we mentioned before, we're going to do this topic occasionally, and we have a list started, but if there are any firsts you'd like to include, let us know. Yeah, please do. So we know this is a a rather short episode, um, so we have a little bit of time left.
0: And since we have a little bit of time left, we thought we'd share an awesome email we got from a listener named Charlie Lambert. Uh, he worked at the zoo as a child and was kind enough to share his experience from that time. Here's what Charlie had to say I went to work at Memphis Zoo in 1953, shortly before my 10th birthday, renting baby strollers at the front gate, assisted by my seven year old brother.
1: Oh, wow, that's well, amazing. Yeah,
0: labor laws were not totally <laughs> it's, unchecked in check
1: then. Kind of lax back yeah, then. It's okay,
0: though. Our duties were to keep the strollers clean, have the customer sign a logbook, and pay us 50 cents. Our next-door neighbor, Charlie Bell, owned the stroller and photo concessions at the zoo. Uh, He convinced our parents that he would watch after us. (laughs) We only worked on Sundays. Well, at least there's that.
1: That's right. right. You know.
0: At that time, the Memphis Zoological Gardens was the largest free zoo in the country. It was subsidized by Abe Plow, CEO of Plow Incorporated, to keep it free and to keep it beautiful. I have heard he gave the zoo a million dollars a year for that purpose.
1: Wow. That's awesome.
0: I vividly recall the Free Circus at 2.30 every afternoon. The ringmaster was Tommy O'Brien. He had a history with Cole Brothers Circus. His wife, Marguerite, performed on the trapeze along with other things in the show. The circus had camels, elephants, horses, ponies, dogs, human performers, and clowns all packed into a 45-minute performance. It was riveting and all free. Tommy was garbed in a silk shirt, billed cap, and carried a masterful whip to act as the master of the ring. The director of the zoo, Nick Melroy, brought the circus into the zoo in the 1940s. He had been a lion tamer at Coles in his earlier career. Word has it that Melroy was also a tattoo artist who practiced that art in the house provided for him in the zoo grounds.
1: And given the pictures I've seen of Mr. Melroy, I would say that's probably accurate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When he was not performing, O'Brien oversaw the pony track providing rides for kids at 10 cents apiece. He was also one of the managers of the staff at the zoo. Uh, He took a baby gorilla home with him one time for several weeks to be sure it received proper feeding during the night. It was very nice of him. Yeah. Later on, I was promoted to assistant photographer at the picture booth next to the stroller rental stand. I was working on weekends and every day during the summer for Mr. Bell. I was trained by another teen, Donnie Walden, who had worked at the zoo for Bell since 1950. He was eight years my senior. The camera we used, a direct positive model, reversed the images so we had to have the background of the pictures reversed. It was originally uh, just rocks and water, but later depicted front gates of the zoo, and eventually we ha- added the date on the background so people could trace the vintage of the pictures.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah.
0: Bell was known as a concessionaire. He owned a second picture booth in another part of the zoo, one at the Fairgrounds Amusement Park, and a collection of carnival games and rides in Riverside Park. He was a true carny. He could turn one cents sale into several dollars on sheer salesmanship skill. In those days, farm families came in droves to the zoo from all over the Mid-South. They had saved up for a visit all year, and a few dollars for pictures meant little to them. Our take on a good day was over $100, a veritable fortune in those days. I received $5 for my eight-hour shift. One day, a jaguar named Mary escaped from its cage and perched itself on top of the cat house, The Carnivora building built in 1909, still there, but it's now a restaurant. The keeper considered Mary a pet. He climbed up and sat on the roof alongside Mary until she, tired of the adventure, and meekly returned to her cage. Another time, a black panther got out and roamed the zoo shortly before opening time. A bunch of us zoo employees scrambled when we saw it heading our way. (laughs) Cokes and Peanuts went a-flying as it brushed past us and into the main restaurant where it was confined in a storage room. No harm was done.
1: Thankfully. Yeah.
0: Uh, the zoo sold an elephant to Hollywood Studio to appear in a film.
1: We mentioned this elephant, Modoc, in the Memphis Zoo
0: episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Modoc lived in a confined area separated by a moat. Uh, getting it across the moat on a wooden ramp was no easy task. No one could lure the pachyderm to venture the journey until its trainer, Red Parkey, walked across the ramp and told Modoc to follow him, which she did instantly. The pony track ponies escaped and ran amok, as did the monkeys on Monkey Mound, which what was it called again?
1: Uh, Monkey Island. Monkey Island. Yeah, which apparently those monkeys like to run amok. Uh, That that seems to be an appropriate uh, adjective for tiny monkeys (laughs) and apparently ponies.
0: (laughs) The cleaner left his boat in the moat surrounding the mound, and the simians hitched a ride to shore (laughs) and led the keepers in quite a chase. All just part of the experience of working in a zoo. Awesome. (laughs) Boating monkeys. Yes. The main downside to being a part of that world in the 1950s was the treatment of black guests. The zoo was closed to blacks except for on Thursdays. A sign was rolled into the front gate Thursday morning that said colored only. In addition to that, most of the food stands and other amenities closed on Thursdays. The main restaurant would serve at the counter, but the tables and chairs that usually filled the large veranda were stacked up on Wednesday afternoons to keep the Thursday patrons off of them. Even the restrooms were limited that day. As for the picture booth, we made a killing on Thursdays. We had a record number of patrons.
1: And that's quite a bummer for the zoo, but luckily I believe we said it was in the 60s that they had opened it up to right. everybody uh, every day, which um, is is good.
0: Yeah. I would not take anything from my experiences working at that young age, learning how to manage money, encountering all variety of human beings from Abe Plow and Bill Loeb, who liked having pictures made, to the Bearden family. Willie is a local legend, and I have somewhere in my reams of photos a picture of him, his parents, and his siblings that I took in the 1950s. The poor, the rich, the down-and-out, rural, city-bred, young and old, black and white, they all came to the zoo. I tried to be nice to everyone. The great people who worked at the zoo became, in many cases, lifelong friends. My friend Donnie Walden died last year in his 80s. I had breakfast with him every Friday till the day he couldn't be there. Yeah. I may not be the only living person who dates to 1953 at the zoo, but I am one of the few. Anyone else who wants to beat my record, I hope to hear from you. Well, I hope you do hear from them, Charlie, if there's anybody out there.
1: I do too. I think that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Thanks a lot, Charlie.
1: Yeah. And he mentioned the Beardens and Willie Bearden. And for those of you who listen to this podcast, um, Willie Bearden is married to Kim Bearden, who runs the Elmwood Cemetery, our favorite place in Memphis um, and he's also a, a fantastic historian. So that's, I think that's why he put his name in his letter. Um, right. So uh, if you, I guess this is our little shout out to Elmwood. If yeah. you've not been there, we shout out to Elmwood a lot, but yeah. if you've not been there, um, they have uh, some fantastic tours that go on. Currently they're, um, they're doing some social distancing tours, but also they've got some uh, Zoom kind of, what would you call them?
0: Well, they're just virtual tours, the, the, virtual presentations. Virtual Kim, presentations.
1: Yeah. There you go. They've got some Zoom presentations that Kim Bearns has been doing recently. So it, it's yeah. all really awesome. They're fantastic historians. They love the city. So mm-hmm. anyway, shout out to Elmwood too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, again, many thanks to Charlie Lambert for his amazing account of his time and experiences at the zoo. Uh, and Charlie seems like a very nice gentleman and we, we really appreciate him reaching out to us. Uh, that was super cool. All right. So don't forget to check out our next episode in two weeks. It'll drop on Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, Android, or whatever you listen to your podcast on. Don't forget to check out our website, unearthmemphis.com, and on social media at unearthmemphis on Instagram and facebook.com slash unearth901 unearth901 on twitter or email us at unearthmemphis at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you guys yeah, we'd we love to uh, get more story ideas again we've we've got a whole slew of them but we just love hearing from people we like interacting with everyone yeah
0: and please if we've gotten something wrong we would love to know that just because we like to be accurate.
1: Exactly. And uh, that being said, we are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We've done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility some of these facts are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so we're not putting out any untrue information. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have anything to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we used and book titles, etc. to gather our information.
0: I feel like you just read Side Effects.
1: <laughs> I do work for a doctor's office. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for
0: listening. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye. Bye bye. Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.